The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hey, it's Jesse. I don't know if any of you all are soccer fans, but I have been watching the Women's World Cup uh, this year uh, with my son, and it's been a lot of fun, but also it's getting pretty tense. I don't know if any of y'all saw the Portugal game last weekend, but there was this one moment right at the end. Portugal and the U.S. were tied 0-0, and Portugal hit the ball, and it went so close, so close to scoring, and then bounce, sort of ricocheted off the side of the goal. In that moment, Megan Rapinoe, well, her heart skipped. At least that's what she told the New York Times, because this is her last World Cup. And if that ball had gone in the net, it would have been all over. It's not. There's another game this Sunday. The U.S. will play Sweden. And so I just thought, you know, we had Megan in the studio earlier this spring Let's bring that episode back in honor of the U.S.'s game against Sweden this weekend, which we hope, we hope will keep them in the cup. Here's our recent conversation with Megan Rapino. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. In 2016, five members of the U.S. women's national soccer team sued the U.S. Soccer Federation. They were tired of being paid less than the men, and they set out to do something about it. One of those five women is today's guest, Megan Rapino, And she'll be the first to tell you that she never expected this fight to drag on so long. For six years, they argued their case. They wanted the same contracts as the guys, the same size bonuses, and access to the same things, like charter flights to games. Then, after six long years of publicly making their case, after they'd won another World Cup, after their entire team filed a second suit, then they finally won. In a $24 million settlement, the Federation agreed to back pay for players and to equal pay going forward. Now, this is significant for soccer, but really for all sports and for work in general. These days, Megan is still playing soccer, but she's found her voice beyond that. With her pink hair and her prominent relationship with one of the greatest basketball players in history, Sue Bird, Megan is an icon. She's used that status to advocate for things that matter to her, like pay equity. In fact, she recently joined a startup called Truzaic. It sells software to help companies close their pay gap, among other things. Today, we're going to talk about that and so much more. But let's start by going back, way back to 2016. Here's Megan. We're seeing more fans and popularity and media rights deals. And I think just for us personally, we were, you know, starting to understand a different landscape off the field for our individual sponsorships or um, appearances that we were being paid for. Um, just sort of the, the increasing level of money off the field. Uh, for us individually versus the very sort of like stagnant, unequal wages that we were being paid on the field doesn't, you know, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure, <laughs> figure out that something's, <laughs> something's a little bit awry. Certainly. And yet it was such a significant thing when, when the lawsuit was announced. 
it was a long process. Did you know at the outset that it would likely carry out that long? No, I never felt like it was going to go any longer than <laughs> than uh, a short amount of time. I never felt like from their perspective, that was the right move. It's just obvious that we were being, uh, you know, discriminated against in a lot of different ways. And I think, you know, it was very obvious that there's really only like one path forward for everybody. I felt like it was a really beneficial path forward for everybody. Um, and something that if the Federation would have been able to get on board a lot earlier, A, would have saved them a lot of um, money and saved all of us a lot of headache and effort spent towards that. But I, I think that we could have um, capitalized on it in a different way as well. So there was always, you know, as the sort of days ticked on, there were always just such a cost yeah. um, that never really made made sense to me. And I didn't find very, very smart as a strategy. A brand cost, an emotional cost, the actual economic cost. What else? I think just the trust with the fans, trust within the media. You know, I always said this, if if we were able to, with, you know, all of the star power that we had and success on the field and all that, able to collaborate with the Federation in, you know, the stated goals, of course, of growing the sport, both commercially and, and growing the sport in the country and growing the level. And that means sponsorships and branding and ticket sales and, and all of that. I just felt like we could have been a lot further. We spent a lot of time squabbling, you know, between each other and us tearing their brand down and them trying to tear us down. And I always just felt like this was costing a lot of money to ultimately, for me, always be going one place with it. And that was going to be the team getting equal pay, um, in one, in one way or another, hopefully avoiding a strike or avoiding a, a work stoppage. But, you know, ultimately we just wasted millions of dollars getting to the exact same place we were always going. Right. That maybe the lawyers and the media didn't need it as much as, um, other programs might have. What aspects of, of character and of leadership did, did participating in that experience foster in you? I think it kind of opened up this whole new space for all of us on the team. You were, we're obviously used to collaborating and working together in a team environment to achieve whatever you know goal we're having to do. But this required a, a sort of different kind of self-reflection, I think, from all of us. Um, I think one of the most powerful things that we were able to do was identify everyone's strongest attribute and like allow that person to thrive in that. Nobody was going to be asking me to be reading all the legal briefs and like getting all the details, <laughs> <laughs> but somebody who was really talented at that. And, you know, nobody maybe was going to be asking, you know, Becky Sauerbrunn to be doing media at 6am. Like she didn't want to do that. That wasn't her best quality. So I think regardless of our, uh, you know, sort of station on the field or our best attributes on the field, we didn't just carry that over into, you know, a boardroom setting or into um, the setting that was our lawsuit, we really sort of took the time to say, okay, we're going to need all of us to strategize and all of us to do the things that we're most talented in. And we sort of let people, um, you know, be leaders in a lot of different ways. And I, I think for me, you know, just, just knowing at times my voice is really powerful at times, my voice is not very powerful and it's much more effective for me to stay quiet and let someone else take the lead. So I think for us to build a, a deeper and different level of trust within ourselves is really cool because we, I think ultimately are, are a, you know, a group of really passionate, intelligent, experienced women. 
um, you know, being able to put those different aspects of ourselves on full display, I think was really empowering in a lot of different ways for all of us. Um, were there moments of like of deep concern that it wasn't going to go your way? I think my dissociative powers of positivity <laughs> wouldn't allow that for me. You know, if, if quote unquote losses came to us, we were like, okay, well, we'll just keep going. Right. Um, and I think that's a little bit of the athlete mindset of, you know, a, a failure isn't really a failure. It's just sort of a step on the road to success. So being able to kind of push through those. Um, but there was, I think for us, we always just really understood that it was only going one place. You only have one team to play. Right. And it's us. Right. And we're going to be relentless. And eventually, you know, the rubber's going to kind of hit the road. We're either going to get a new contract and have a settlement or we're not. And I said multiple times that the Federation wins, everyone loses. And if we win, everybody, everybody wins. So I want to come back to this idea of fairness in the context of pay equity. I would love for you to explain to us what we're talking about when we think about pay equity. I think the way that that I would frame it is not ex having everything be exactly the same all the time, but having the opportunity for resource and investment be the same. How we spend the money might be different things that we need. They might want to do things in a different way, allocate more resources to you know, a particular set of skills or people or, um, you know, accommodations, we might want to do something different, but having the opportunity at essentially the same pot of money. And therefore, in my opinion, the same opportunity to reach your potential and to maximize what you're doing and, and get, you know, ultimately for us, the best opportunity to win the World Cup and be the best players that we are. You know, I've always thought that what's tricky about it is that we're not asking everybody to make all of the same types of choices or do things in the same way, right? We want to give everybody the same opportunity, but also the ability to apply the diversity and uniqueness of the point of view that they bring to use the resources in different ways and to grow in different directions and to somehow reward equitably that growth. How do we even begin to understand how to approach a question like that? Like how to understand what equity means in that context? I think we love to talk about it like this problem that we absolutely cannot figure out. And I'm like, yeah, we can't. <laughs> if we're just really honest about with it, what like our country was founded on and how we even got here. So I think we should speak very openly about racism and about sexism and about homophobia and how those things have affected people in society and in the workplace and address it first from there, like go to the most intersectional place that you can be at and approach it from that perspective. But if you're not going to be honest about that, like it's going to be a very complex issue that you're never going to get to because the answer is hiding sort of in plain sight. And it's, I think ultimately and in the long run, it's it's best for business. I think we we know that. But there is going to be a little bit of a, a cost up front, whether that's, you know, the sort of closing the gap or making people whole or the time and energy and effort that is going to have to be put forth by companies and by um, the executives in particular and the willingness to accept responsibility in the problem while also being proactive to solve it. I mean, there's, I mean, I think Trusaic's a, a perfect example. Like there is software and there is 
tools out there to help everyone. But I think insofar as we're not willing to be honest about some of the factors that are causing inequitable pay gaps and causing the inequity that we're seeing, then yeah, we can continue to pretend like it's this insolvable issue. This approach to equity that Megan champions, it takes time and effort, long-term thinking. Sometimes you have to slow things down and really examine your processes. When you're moving quickly, it's much easier to just bring along the people who have a common shorthand, who look and think like you do. So I asked Megan what she's learned about building diverse teams in soccer and how that translates to business. I love this question and actually think about this question a lot in the in the context of teams, because I think sometimes when people think about sports teams, there's, you know, the sacrifice language comes up and doing everything for the team and, you know, having to ultimately work, you know, as a team for the betterment of, of the goal of everything. But I always say, like, that's all good and well. But if everybody sacrifices everything about them, then you have nothing. So I think the most important thing in sports, and I would agree in business as well, is that, yes, there's there has to be a, a sort of greater goal of what we're, we're trying to do. And I, I love the collective energy and the sort of something special that can come from, you know, multiple people or workforce or a team. Like you can get something different than you would ever be able to get individually in a group setting, but only when everybody brings that something that is special to them or something that is unique to them. And when people feel like they can bring that, then they're much more willing to do the other sacrificial work that you have to do to be a part of the team. But when people feel like sort of their, their individuality is stripped away, well, then it's like, who are we? We all know internally that we're very unique and we have, you know, our own perspective and we have this whole world inside of us. And so when we're given that space to really express that, I think the the idea of, of teamwork becomes much more attractive and you feel respected and you feel valued as a human and valued for the individual attributes that you can bring and also motivated to do what the team needs. And if you take it into a business setting, I, I think it's it's easy to get get the point. You you allow people to do the things that they're they're really good at. And I think, yeah, you can you can move fast and and break things, but then things are really broken and built on a very shaky foundation moving forward. For a team to be as successful as the team that you have been on, there can't be any cracks in the foundation, or at least I assume there can't. You can call me out on this. I assume there can't be any cracks in the foundation. How do you ensure that? What are the ingredients to to really, truly building a team of people who trust each other? Yeah, I think cracks in the foundation is much different than allowing for the complexities of being a whole person. And so allowing for the space for people to be different and allowing for the space for maybe not everyone to be treated or be handled exactly the same. We have to account for systemic racism. We have to account for, you know, sexism and a pay gap and and all of these things. So approaching non-perfection, not in a way as it's a bad thing, but just as something that we have to account for. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, more with Megan Rapino. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. You know, when I was preparing to talk to Megan, I listened to her on this podcast called Snacks. She was on the pod talking with a couple of other soccer players. And the thing that resonated with me so deeply about this conversation was their sense of belonging to a thing. It just made me think about something that we've touched on here at Hello Monday a lot, loneliness. The Surgeon General has declared a crisis around loneliness. Teams have clearly given Megan that sense of belonging. And I wanted to understand, can teams actually show us anything about how to foster this in our own lives? So once again, here's Megan Rapino. I think in a team and in a, a sports environment, it's hard to ignore the whole human. Like we're coming and we see each other every day. It's a it's an extremely intimate environment in so many ways, you know, closer than you are with your family in certain ways because you spend more time with them, closer than you are with some of your friends because you're traveling with them, but you're also all collectively pursuing, you know, a goal together and you're failing together and you're succeeding together and, you know, failing much more than you're succeeding. So your insecurities are out there and, you know, you catch each other on good days and bad days. So there's a, there's a sense of, of allowing people's wholeness to exist within the context of the goal really is perfection. Like you're never going to get there, but the goal really is to do the absolute best that you possibly can both individually and as a team and everybody sort of collectively buying into that, I think that breeds a, um, a real sense of trust and a real sense of belonging and a sense of intimacy. And I think a sense for people to be seen as whole, you know, if, if anybody only just like cared about what I did on the field and if I was scoring goals, then they were talking to me. And if I wasn't scoring goals and they weren't talking to me or my pay was docked, like that wouldn't feel very good for me. That wouldn't really, you know, foster that sense of, of caring and belonging and, and understanding. So I think there's something to the nature of how much we're around each other. Um, but also the, this, this sort of effort, both like emotionally and physically and mentally that you have to put in and commit to the team in order to reach what everybody's trying to reach that. Yeah. It just sort of fosters that deeper, level of intimacy and allows people to be seen in a different way. And I've been in environments where that, that isn't there that much. And it's really not as enjoyable. It's like, if you're going to have to be around these people all the time, not to say that we all have to be best friends, because I do not believe in that. But I think they're the teams that, that allow for individuality and the teams that allow for, you know, a greater sense of appreciation of each person you know, and I think a lot of that has to do with equality. A lot of it has to do with having environments that are safe for gay people and having environments that are safe for our players of color to speak about things openly and to know that, you know, the white players are going to be allies for the black players. Um, to have that sense, I think, really allows, you know, people to 
to do what we all know, which is to like show up as a full human. Nobody just shows up as a robot. Um, and, and I don't think that's really the goal either. Yeah. Um, that's kind of inspiring to think about and, and also happening against the backdrop of kind of a difficult cultural moment. You know, you, you reference showing up as your full self and showing up, you are an out player and that's very, you know, incredibly important. That invisibility is incredibly important. Um, we exist in a moment where like visibility is really on the line for queer people in particular. Um, it's something that's very significant for me. In fact, I wrote a book about my queer family that came out this year. And at the center of it was my transgender brother's experience carrying a child. And I'm looking out at the world and noticing that there are 30 states now um, that have introduced legislation that is destructive and challenging to transgender people. In fact, I think just yesterday, uh, Texas became the largest state to essentially ban health care for transgender children. Mm-hmm. Um, it's terrifying and sad, and you have been very outspoken about this um, on social media and in public. And I'm, I'm curious, um, like, do you pay a price for that in your career or in your you're sort of on your public stage as that issue becomes more divisive and how do you choose to think about it? I don't personally think I pay a price. I think that the the cost of what we're doing is so much greater than any price that I could pay. Um, I, and I say that because I'm just extremely privileged and, you know, not to be you know, woke with the word privilege, but I am extremely privileged. I'm not only a white woman, but I'm a famous athlete. Um, I'm very wealthy by, you know, normal standards. And so I have a, a very deep level of protection. I think not, not just from, um, you know, media, but, but I think being on a team and being able to play for the U.S. Women's national team and being who I am, uh, I'm not in the same position as, you know, the trans kids in Texas or some of the trans activists or some of the other gay rights activists that are really on the front line. So I don't I don't find any sort of like personal price to pay other than I think the price that we're all paying, which is living in a in a world that wants to exclude whole people, I think is um is detrimental to everyone. And I think being someone, you know, who obviously is participating in sports at the very highest level, who's won championships, won Olympic gold medals, won world cups. I think they're, they're the talking points. It's like, I'm the one they're trying to protect. Right. And so I feel it, my responsibility to completely, you know, rebut that, like, you don't need to protect me. I would, I would give up. And I think a lot, a lot of athletes feel the same. They would, they would give up any sort of championship or whatever, so that some kid doesn't, you know, feel like they don't belong in the world. And, you know, the very worst scenario be committing suicide because they can't stand to live in a world that doesn't accept them as who they are. Yeah. Um, Well put. You know, it's just, it sometimes, it sort of boggles my mind, you know, as a child growing up in the 80s and early 90s, I, as one of those kids who was like, you know, gay before I had a word for it. I just like, if you, if I had had a word for it or a model for it, at seven years old, I would have raised my hand and been like, oh yeah, that's me. Right. But I didn't Mm -hmm. because nobody used the word. I grew up in a very progressive place, but there simply was no language around it. There were not out people on television. My world didn't 
contain that. And it was only after I came out of the closet in college that in retrospect, I saw, oh, the church organist was gay. Oh, my mom's guitar student was gay, right? But there was just no visibility whatsoever. And then my, my adulthood up until a few years ago unfolded against the backdrop of so much changing that by the time I got married and had children, I have a legal document to say that I am married and another legal document to say that I am the parent of a child that I don't share any genetic material with. And that's mind-blowing that that much change was able to happen in less than two decades. It is as mind-blowing to me that in the three or four years since that child was born, um, we've taken a a sharp sort of U-turn and we're moving back toward a place where that visibility, that necessary visibility, forget the politics of it, is going away. And a whole sea of children are going to grow up in a world where they don't see modeled for them safe ways of expressing who they are. In that context, like what, what can we all do? I think as with probably most or all really significant periods of progress, there's always a sort of you know, lash to that. Um, and I, I think it's a little bit of, you know, maybe getting comfortable or, um, it's hard to sustain the sort of drum beat of progress. It takes a lot of work. Um, you know, the, the progress that was made the last two decades, which we were speaking of was hard fought, like really, really hard fought. Um, and, Sometimes I think the win can be like um, a little exhale, which I think just is, is human nature and that's natural. But I think we all need to realize like these things are sustained through sustained, you know, action and interest and, you know, our kind of civic duty as citizens in this country to continue to mandate what what we want the country to be. And I always say this about politics. I think a lot of people are just overwhelmed with it. I think it has become very divisive. I think the way that media is now, and I think social media was just kind of like the, the clips of everything, little clippets and clip baits, and we're just reading, you know, headlines and it just feels exhausting in a lot of ways. So I understand that, but like it's, Politics is politicking no matter what. So whether you are interested in it or not doesn't really matter. Um, It's interested in you. (laughs) So the more you're involved, um, the more your voice will be heard. And the less you're involved, the less your voice will be heard. But decisions will be made and mandates will be had and legislation will be crafted and passed and, you know, put into effect. So like you might as well be involved and at least have your voice be heard. I think there's an assumption that people have to spend like 20 hours a day, you know, reading articles to be informed. And I just don't, I don't think that's the case. And I think we've, you know, we've seen in, you know, the last, you know, five, six years, just how much can be done when we're not really all that, all that plugged in. I think, you know, I think the majority of the country does not want to live the way that we're living right now. The majority of the country does not agree with the trans bans. The majority of the country, um, I think, would would like to see, you know, our our country be run a different way. But in order for that to happen, you know, citizens have to have to mandate that. 
That was Megan Rapino, star athlete and chief equality officer for Truzaic. We'll link to her work in the show notes. Hey, Jesse. Sarah? Hey. So before we go any further, there's something that we need to talk about with our whole listener community. Wait. Rewind. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Hey, all. This is Sarah Storm, our producer. Everyone say hello to Sarah. Hey, everyone. So, um, Sarah, thank you for giving me a moment. Um, It is Pride. We're almost to the end of the month. And my family has been doing this special thing for Pride. Um, As many of you know, I wrote this book last year. It was called The Family Outing. And Sarah, I have to tell you, when I started to think about writing this book, equality felt like it was a done deal. Didn't it? It really did. It felt to me like queer people, people like my father who is gay or my sister who is bisexual and my brother who is transgender and me, we'd somehow won. And by won, I just mean like won the right to live comfortably and safely in a world that afforded us equal rights. I I remember those moments. I, I, I miss that moment, don't you? Well, I have to say we're really not in it right now. No, we are not. No. And I've really realized that the spring, because um, as my book has been out in the world, I've gotten notes from readers who have fought really hard to keep it in libraries mm-hmm. in many places. It's the kind of book that libraries in many towns don't really want to put on the shelf. Last month, in particular, I got a note from a reader in Arkansas And uh, they shared a copy of the book with me, and it was dedicated to a young person who had taken their life, Mm -hmm. a transgender young person. And I just thought, well, what can I do? I I have this book right now. Um, And so, Sarah, my wife and I, we thought up a little thing that we could do. I, I love this little thing you thought up. And I have to tell you that, like, when you told me about it, it filled me with peace and comfort because it was one small thing that I could participate in that made me feel way less helpless than I had felt before. Okay, so here's the idea. We literally are calling it the Gift It Forward campaign. You go to my website, jessiejhempel.com, or you can find it in the show notes or you can find it on LinkedIn. There are two buttons. And one button allows you to sponsor a book. You hit the button and you literally pay for a book. And that book comes to us. So the other button. Yeah. The other button allows you to just receive a book for free. And who can click that button? Well, if you are an educator, an activist, an ally, a librarian, we want to send you the book for free. Our only request is that you, once you've read the book, that you agree to try to pass it on, you know, to leave it in a Starbucks in your community or ideally to leave it in one of those little free library boxes in your own neighborhood. So if I've never read the book, I can get it from you. And if I have or I want to share it with somebody else, I can click that button. And either way, the book and the story goes around the country. You got it. I love it. As for me and my wife, well, we take this road trip every June, Sarah. You know about this road Mm -hmm. trip. We drive all the way from our home in Brooklyn to our home in Mississippi. This road trip takes us through 14 states. And this month, we are taking the pile of books that readers have donated along with us on the ride, and we are literally dropping them off in small communities throughout those 14 states in the little free library boxes. So when you post the newsletter about this episode, will you share some pictures of your drive? Oh, actually, I would love to. I will totally put pictures in the newsletter. And also you can find them. You can find them on LinkedIn. You can find them on Instagram. Um, But more than that, I wish for everybody that whatever story they have to share about who they are and what their experience has been in the world, that they feel empowered and safe to share it. 
and that they can also look around them and find a version of it, right? Nobody should ever have to feel like they're the only anything anywhere. Happy Pride, Sarah. Happy Pride, Jesse. Anyhow, this week, we are closing out Pride with an office hours. In honor of Megan's new focus, we're going to talk about pay equity. So join us for Office Hours 3 p.m. on Wednesday. We'll go live from the LinkedIn news page. If you're not sure where to find us, send us an email at hellomonday at linkedin.com. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Lolia Briggs and Sarah Storm produced it. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Wallace Truesdale, Kanaya Rogers, and Michaela Greer help us take pride in our work. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. My favorite way to celebrate pride is just to be around as many gay people as possible. (laughs) It's a well-known fact that the gays have more fun. I think it's a balance between enjoying and the sort of party aspect and the fun and really celebrating um, just who we are as a people, but also understanding where that came from and give thanks to the elders always.